Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 34, Plastic Fantastic, in which we begin to enter the world of polymers in the 19th century. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In the early 19th century, the textile industry in England began to incorporate rubber in clothing as a method to ward off getting wet from rain, a common weather pattern in the British Isles. The practice of using rubber was known in the Americas when the first European colonialists arrived, but the Europeans failed to understand the method during the initial colonization period. So only later did Scottish chemist Charles Mackintosh patent a soft rubber sheet sandwiched between two layers of fabric as a basis for a waterproof raincoat in 1824. The word rubber has diverged in usage in the USA and Britain. In the Renaissance and Enlightenment eras, the material was often called caoutchouc, from an indigenous word meaning weeping wood. Joseph Priestley, who appears in many earlier episodes of this podcast, found in 1770 that it was a good way to remove or rub off pencil markings, hence rubber. To this day in Britain, what Americans call an eraser, the British call a rubber. In America, a rubber is something else entirely. Rubber, or latex, is a product from the Amazonian rubber tree. The problem with natural rubber, especially treated with naphtha as Macintosh did, is that it had a terrible smell and it was stiff. When the idea was brought to the USA which has a tendency for a wider range of temperatures than Britain, the rubber got gooey and icky in the hot summer and non-pliable in the colder winters. In Connecticut, USA, in the 1830s, Nathaniel Hayward began experiments to overcome this deficiency in rubber. He found that spreading out rubber over cloth and sprinkling powdered sulfur over the rubber and drying in the sun solved some of this gooeyness problem and patented this in 1839. He sold the rights to Charles Goodyear, who continued research. Goodyear himself was already interested in industrial uses for rubber since the early 1830s. Goodyear first found that magnesium oxide appeared to solve the stickiness problem and set up a shoe factory with the help of donors in New Haven, Connecticut. Unfortunately, the stickiness in the treated rubber gradually returned, and Goodyear's creditors were angry. But Goodyear went forward anyway. He discovered that heating rubber with sulfur gave the rubber a much better set of properties. Goodyear patented his scheme in 1844 and called it vulcanization, and it finally put vulcanized rubber on the map. Eight years later, he traveled to England and met Thomas Hancock, who seems to have invented the same process simultaneously. As with other similar inventions, there were patent disputes. 
Rubber's value in clothing and industry grew during the 19th century. The first pneumatic rubber tire was patented in 1845, but was very slow to catch on. About 1857, the first rubber carriage wheels were used, but with the invention of bicycles and then automobiles later in the 19th century, demand for rubber exploded. Here the problem became supply. The main source for latex were rubber trees in South America, but there was some smuggling of seeds to England, whence the colonials sent seedlings to their colonies, such as India and Sri Lanka. So, organic chemists of the 19th century began searching for ways to synthesize rubber so as not to need to import the material. English chemist Greville Williams determined in 1860 that the small molecule isoprene. A five carbon molecule is the quote, mother substance unquote, of latex. Unfortunately, chemists' efforts failed to duplicate rubber chemically, so then they tried to duplicate the physical properties of rubber. The first semi decent imitation of latex came around 1910 when Russian chemist Sergei Lebedev created a substance called polybutadiene. In 1926, Lebedev was able to link two ethanol molecules, each with two carbons, together to make the four carbon butadiene. By the second quarter of the 20th century, the Soviet Union was probably the largest manufacturer of synthetic butadiene rubber in the world. But note the name, polybutadiene. Chemists realized that somehow a whole lot of butadiene molecules. Small four carbon molecules were bound together to make this substance, hence the name poly, meaning many. The substance was called a polymer because it was made of many units. Our buddy Berzelius, back in the early 19th century, coined the word polymer. Each individual part or molecule of butadiene was called a monomer or single unit. Precisely how these units attached together was unclear to chemists of the early 20th century, and our story will have to wait till a later episode for the answer. Let's return back to the middle of the 19th century and English inventor Alexander Parkes, P A R K E S. In 1855, Parkes dissolved gun cotton, nitrocellulose, in a solvent, which could be alcohol or perhaps wood naphtha, the liquid product from distilling wood, and adding a plasticizer, which might be camphor or vegetable oil. This was the first synthetic plastic material, which Parkes called parkseen. The noun form for the word plastic would not appear for another half century. Parkes won a bronze medal at the London International Exposition in 1862 for his new material, which was described in a brochure as quote, a substance hard as horn, but as flexible as leather, capable of being cast or stamped, painted, dyed, or carved. Unquote. Made into jewelry, fountain pens, brush handles, and buttons, it still was not a huge success for Parks. His business partner, Daniel Spill, bought out the failing business, 
and remarketed the plastic material as xylanite, spelled with an X, manufactured by the British Xylanite Company, which lasted until the early 1960s. In 1863, a New York billiard ball company, Phelan and Colender, set up a $10,000 prize asking for a substitute for ivory in billiard balls. Ivory was getting scarcer and more expensive. John Wesley Hyatt took up the challenge and invented what he called celluloid, patented in 1869. Several years later, he set up the Celluloid Manufacturing Company to make items like piano keys, false teeth, and, of course, billiard balls. Celluloid, however, is almost identical to Parkscene. Whether Hyatt won the ivory substitute prize, I cannot determine. Naturally, word of this celluloid filtered back to England, and Daniel Spill sued Hyatt for patent infringement during 1877 to 1884. Eventually, the court decided that Parks was the true inventor of celluloid and xylanite, but both British xylanite and celluloid manufacturing could continue to make their products, which included combs, toys, baby rattles, shirt collars, and so forth. Celluloid became the first truly popular plastic. A variant of the material was invented in 1884 by Louis Bernigot, Count Hilaire de Chardonnay. Bernigot was a co-worker of Louis Pasteur, researching remedies for the epidemic destroying the French silkworm population. He was in a dark room and spilled a bottle of collodion, a nitrocellulose coating for photographic plates. He saw nitrocellulose fibers appear and wondered if this could be a substitute for silk. After some years of work, he figured out how to extrude nitrocellulose fibers through pores 0.5 millimeters in diameter. The fibers were made into yarn and cloth. He unveiled his Chardonnay silk at the Paris Exposition in 1889. This was the first artificial textile fiber and is also called rayon, for it shines as though it has rays from the sun. Another variant of nitrocellulose was invented at this time, too. American entrepreneur George Eastman was concerned about glass photographic plates and decided to create a non-breakable substitute. He created a film of celluloid and coated it with photosensitive silver salts mixed with gelatin, which would be flexible but stable. He patented his roll film in 1884 and four years later invented a camera for it, which he named Kodak an invented word which included the strong K sound. The camera contained film for 100 photographs. After exposing all the film, the photographer sent the camera back with $10 to have the Kodak company develop the film and return the camera with new film. Eastman's invention took the difficult and finicky chemical process out of the photographer's hands and popularized photography. Kodak's slogan was, you press the button, we do the rest. Kodak then began supplying movie film to the new cinematographic industry by the 1890s. 
But for all these successes, celluloid had a serious flaw. Being made of nitrocellulose, it was highly flammable. Concerning celluloid billiard balls, Hyatt himself noted in 1914 that, quote, occasionally the violent contact of the balls would produce a mild explosion like a percussion gun cap, unquote. Bernigo's rayon fabric was known snarkily as mother-in-law silk because of its flammability. The movie industry was known for dangerous fires involving celluloid film stock. Five major conflagrations were recorded in 1914 alone. Even medical clinics weren't immune. A leaky steam pipe in the Cleveland Clinic's basement in May 1929, where X-ray film was stored, caused over 100 deaths in the building when the film ignited, burned, and emitted noxious fumes. What could one do? Meanwhile, chemists were continuing to explore this new sea of organic possibilities. In 1897, a German printer, Wilhelm Krische, was hired by the government to create a non-flammable white chalkboard to replace the slate boards used in schools everywhere. He tried to get milk protein, casein, to stick to cardboard and asked for assistance from chemist Adolf Spitteler. Their whiteboard didn't succeed, but they did manage to create a polymer substance from casein and formaldehyde, which they called galalith, from Greek gala, milk, and lithos, stone. Often it was even called milkstone. In the UK, this material is sometimes called erinoid. Galalith was not moldable, so it was manufactured in sheets, boards, pipes, and rods, which were then machined into all sorts of interesting shapes, from fake gemstones to knitting needles, handles for umbrellas, the white keys on a piano, and fountain pens. But when Coco Chanel started accessorizing her fashions with Galilith costume jewelry, it really took off in popularity, and Art Deco designs were Galilith's heyday. During World War II, production dropped, and never regained its former glory because of newer and more versatile polymers we shall explore later that were moldable. Galilith is still made in very small amounts, mostly for button manufacture. The next major polymer we encounter through the Belgian-American chemist Leo Bakeland. In the early 1890s, after coming to the USA, he became well known for his invention of Velox photographic paper, the first photo paper that could be printed with artificial light. He sold his rights for a huge amount of money and a non-compete clause that he couldn't work in photographic chemistry for two decades. So he turned to polymers and, like Spitteler's Galilith, began experimenting with the small molecule formaldehyde. His first project was to find an artificial replacement for shellac, which is made from a particular beetle. Shellac was in short supply because it was used at that time to insulate electrical wires. He combined phenol and formaldehyde to create what he called Novolac, but it was not as good as real shellac. Then he turned to trying this phenol, the monomer, with formaldehyde as the linking molecule, 
as a moldable plastic material. He was finally successful with a fully synthetic polymer product that was an electrical insulator, chemically resistant, heat resistant, and moldable all in one nice little substance, which he named Bakelite. He patented in 1907 and announced his product at the New York sectional meeting of the American Chemical Society in 1909. Bakelite himself was the first person to use the word plastic as a noun, that is, a moldable polymer. So from here on, we can call these materials plastics. Bakelite was a huge success, and many historians of technology regard its invention as the start of the true age of plastics. The new industry of consumer electronics, which required vacuum tubes for rectification and amplification of signals, and the high voltages and heat the filaments inside them required, gobbled up Bakelite to use in radio chassis, knobs and dials, telephone cases, later television sets, electrical parts for cars, and more. For general household use, it found success in kitchenware, costume jewelry, toys, light bulb sockets, and beyond. The Bakelite Corporation's slogan became, The Material of a Thousand Uses. The substance is still used for a variety of game pieces. The downside is that Bakelite has an amber color, which limits its range of commercial colors. Our next step in the journey down plastic lane is cellulose acetate. The material was known since 1865, and soluble forms were found in 1903. But the brothers Camille and Henri Dreyfus, from Switzerland, newly minted PhDs, experimented in the family backyard with cellulose acetate to give that polymer a commercial life. They knew very well about the flammability problem of cellulose nitrate and decided to try out cellulose acetate as a far less flammable material as a substitute. Their first successes by 1910 were cellulose acetate film for the movie industry and a special lacquer called airplane dope used at that time to protect cloth-covered airplane wings and bodies. It took them three more years and 20,000 experiments to reach a stage of cellulose acetate continuous filament yarn. Then the Great War broke out and interrupted their research. The British asked Camille to set up a cellulose acetate dope plant for military aeronautics in 1914, and then in 1917 the USA asked him to set up a similar plant in America. After the war, the factories were looking for business. So, the Dreyfus brothers returned to their yarn project, and in the 1920s, they finally achieved commercial success with their Selenese textiles. Selenese has many similar properties to rayon, and Selenese was able to be permanently pleated with far less wrinkling. A downside to Selenese is that it is sensitive to heat, and can melt in hot clothes dryers. By the 1930s, cellulose acetate movie film began to become popular, lowering the flammability problem, and in the 1950s, cellulose acetate recording tape was used in the early tape recording industry. Interestingly, the Celluloid Manufacturing Company, started by Hyatt in the 1870s, 
was eventually bought out by the Salonese Corporation. But our story here stops in the 1920s. Up until this time, chemists were aware of polymers, but precisely how the monomers were linked together was unclear. This prevented a full understanding of polymer chemistry and hampered development of new polymers. Often the polymers invented were a hit-or-miss affair. We shall resume the story of polymers a bit later on. In our next episode, we return to developments in quantum mechanics of the atom that clarified even more how atoms bonded together, and that vague 19th century chemical affinity. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.